Well, let's take our Bibles and go to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. Our text today is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 14, which is the end of this wonderful letter. The Apostle Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on them because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray the words of the psalmist in Psalm 33 this morning. Let all the earth fear you. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of you. For you spoke and it came to be. You commanded and it stood firm. You bring the counsel of the nations to nothing. You frustrate the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever the plans of your hearts to all generations. So, Father, in your power and in your sovereign wisdom, you and you alone rule the affairs and the peoples of the earth. Thank you for watching over us. Thank you for having your eyes on us, your people. Help us to set our hopes fully on the grace and the glory you have promised to us. We know that you will deliver us And we praise you for your goodness and your faithfulness. Give us now understanding of your word in 1 Peter. Amen. As we finish our study of 1 Peter today, I want to remind you that we we preach the Bible expositionally here at Crossway because it is in the scriptures that God speaks. It is here in his word that he reveals himself and his will And the goal is life transformation. The goal is that your lives will be changed. That as the truth is proclaimed, as God's glory is revealed in what he says about himself, about the human condition, about the world, about the future, that your life will be changed. And that change begins with a renewing of the mind understanding, and then that is worked out in behavior. First Peter is especially relevant for us because we find ourselves in a time when the Christian gospel and the Christian life have fallen out of favor in so many ways with our culture, 
We live at a time when moral right and wrong are no longer socially acceptable. And we face increasing hospitality. That may be political hostility. I say hospitality, I meant hostility. We face a lot of hospitality. There's people giving us food and welcoming us into their homes. Hostility. First Peter's all about hostility. We face increasing hostility. Now, it may be political at times. It may be personal. There's pressure. There's pressure to accommodate. There is always the temptation to hide, to seclude ourselves. And as I've shared with you before, I, I've been burdened over the last several years to prepare us for the kind of rejection and hostility that believers faced in the first century, the Christians to whom Peter is writing here, and the kind of hostility that Christians have faced down through the centuries in many places and many times. Now, it's impossible to know precisely how things will go. They may get better. They may get worse. But Peter applies this assessment, this understanding of the world of culture, of humanity. He applies this understanding to the entire age. The letter of 1 Peter is intended to be read against the backdrop of an era, an age, an epoch in God's history, unfolding of his plan. So from the time Jesus ascended until he returns and is revealed in glory to judge the world, hostility toward the people of God is characteristic. That's the norm. Even if it varies in how harsh it is, or even if there are times and places of respite, which means it is crucial for God's people in every generation to know and understand the book of 1 Peter. Peter addresses us as elect exiles chosen by God to be his people in the world, set apart unto him. He then explains our identity as God's people, that we have been given new life, new birth, that because of that new birth, we have received an eternal inheritance, one that cannot diminish, one that never fades, one that cannot be destroyed. And Peter tells us that as the people of God, we have confidence. We have joy in God's promises to deliver us fully and to reward us. This means our conduct here and now is to be distinctive. We are to be sober-minded, clear-thinking. We are to be holy. We are to be set on eternity. And we are to be set apart to God as a people for his own possession. Our identity then as sojourners and exiles guides our conduct in our society with special meaning for those roles in which Christians may find themselves and be particularly vulnerable to those in positions of power and authority in the world who are not part of the people of God. Peter talks to us as citizens under governments 
in the world that don't necessarily love him and that we're not revolutionaries. Our calling is not to overturn the governments of the world. It is to be his people and to respect and honor, subject ourselves to, submit, Peter says, to the governing authorities. He speaks to slaves who find themselves under masters who are harsh and unfair. He speaks to wives who were in a vulnerable place in their relationships. And they might be married to a husband who doesn't know Christ and who may even be abusive and authoritarian. We follow Jesus himself through this path of suffering. He suffered even to death to bear our sins and to restore us to God. And now we follow in his pattern. We follow in his example. Because there is blessing for suffering unjustly for righteousness sake, because we don't join them in the same flood of sin and rebellion. Through this persecution, God is already separating out from humanity those who really belong to him, preparing the stage for judgment. That's what Peter means when he says in chapter 4 that it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Not that God is coming to punish his people, but that God is already in the work of separating the wheat from the chaff, from those who are really his, from those who don't belong to him. And that the hostility that the world gives to God's people is one way that God is already showing those who are his. And now at the end of his letter, having just called on elders and the church as a whole to clothe ourselves with humility as the elders shepherd and the community follows them, Peter braces us with some last words of encouragement. And dominating these words of encouragement is grace, God's grace. Chapter 5, verse 12 really summarizes his whole letter as the true grace of God. And that we are to stand firm in the truth, which is God's grace or supply to us. So let's look at Peter's last words of encouragement. And I'll put them under these headings. First of all, be humble. God's hand is on you. Be humble. God's hand is on you. Verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore. So while clothing yourselves with humility toward one another, Peter says we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. The insults, the rejection, the attacks may come from unbelievers. That may come from the world outside of the people of God, people, institutions that are outside of the faith, but in truth, it is the mighty hand of God that has ordered these things and put them into motion. So to repay evil for evil, to repay reviling with reviling is not to establish God's justice, but to contradict God, to work against what he is doing. Now, if you're wondering, why would God do that? 
How can it be that God would authorize the world's hostility toward his own people? And remember that Peter has explained this a number of times in this letter. For example, in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, in these trials, and in 1 Peter, these trials have to do with the hostility, rejection. God is, through these things, refining our faith because it has eternal value. He's refining it. He's making it worth more and more. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So those outside of the faith may turn to God, Peter's saying. Even in the face of this hostility, the Lord is using hostility toward his people to put them on display, to show his own patience, his own kindness, his own love for those who don't know him so that they will be struck in their conscience and turn to him and one day give him glory when he returns instead of uh, responding with terror and resisting him. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. There you go. This is just an, when he says, it, uh, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God is another way of reminding us that we have been called to this. We've been called to, at times, as the people of God, suffer unjust hostility. That you may obtain a blessing. There is blessing. When you suffer unjustly, you are called to it. It is design. We don't usually think of our mission as one in which we are suffering. But suffering is part of the mission. Suffering rejection. That's part of bringing the gospel to bear. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In other words, the more you share in Christ's sufferings, the more you will rejoice, the more gladness you will have when his glory is revealed. Amen. And if the spirit of glory and of God is to rest upon you, that is the result of being insulted for the name of Christ. So there you go. So that's why, that's how God can subject his people to hostility and there be purpose and design. In each of these examples, there's one from every chapter of this letter. And here in chapter 5, verse 6, Peter reinforces this same promise. 
Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. That proper time is the designated day. That is the revealing of Jesus and his glory. That's the proper time. Exalting you is another way of describing the praise and glory and honor that we will receive at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He will exalt you. This is a picture from in the Old Testament when someone was defeated, when someone was struck down, when someone was conquered, their faces would be cast down and to lift their face or to exalt them was to restore them to a place of of joy and happiness. That's what Peter's talking about. He will exalt you. So to humble ourselves under his mighty hand then is to trust him. It's to trust him. It's to submit to his good, sovereign purposes. It's to cooperate with his work in refining our faith. But verse 7 tells us that not all the blessing is future. There's comfort here and now while we are sojourners, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He sees. He knows. In the midst of rejection and hostility, God has not abandoned his people. He has not abandoned us. This is one of those great promises of the Bible in which the God of heaven comes down and meets us right where we are. Peter says, he cares for you. The word casting means to heave with a mighty effort. There is a traditional Scottish competition called the caber toss. It's still practiced today at Scottish festivals, at Highland Games and events. And the caber is a tree, usually a large tree, that has been uh, cut all the limbs off and shaved down. It's about 20 feet tall, and it weighs around 175 pounds. And to toss the caber, a, a person has to grab it and heft it up into his hands like this, and he leans it against his shoulder. He runs a short distance and then heaves the caber into the air, trying to flip it over and get as much distance as, as he can. It looks like a telephone pole that he's carrying. When Peter says, cast your anxieties on God, he means to heave the great weight of your anxieties with a mighty effort onto the shoulders of God. He will bear them for you and relieve you of the weight. And that is a picture of this this heaving. The idea of casting your cares upon him is not... Fishing, casting, it's not taking a rock and tossing it. It is this mighty heaving of the weight upon you and casting it with a mighty effort on God. Now, maybe Peter mostly has in mind the distress and the worry because of the vulnerability that comes from being harassed because of our faith in Christ. 
But he has to be including all of the anxieties that belong to this life, that are part of this sojourn, the anxieties of all exiles. We are to heave them onto God. In fact, to humble ourselves under his mighty hand means to trust him. It means to heave those things onto him because he cares for us. And the reason to heave these anxieties is not just because someday he will reveal himself. He will exalt us at the proper time. But it's because he cares for us right now. Do you trust him? Trust him. Humble yourself under his mighty hand. He will exalt you. Heave all of your distress and anxiety on him because he cares for you. So, Peter says, be humble. God's hand is on you. Secondly, Peter leaves us with this. Be watchful. Your enemy hunts you. Be watchful. Your enemy hunts you. Verse 8, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Be alert. Be clear-minded, be on guard, because your adversary, the devil, your opponent, your enemy, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour. This isn't a game. This isn't a show. The devil, of course, is Satan. He who has led the angelic world in rebellion against God, he who tempted Eve and Adam in the Garden of Eden and subverted the purity of their relationship to their creator, he who would destroy the human race if God let him, is he who seeks to steal God's glory by exalting himself to be God. He is your enemy. Keep watch because he is prowling and hunting and he is filled with rage. That is the idea here of roaring. This is a lion who is famished and he wants blood. He wants dinner. And he doesn't devour by taking your life. He devours you by sucking you back into the world through intimidation and compromise. That's the devouring. He is aggressively seeking to undo your understanding of God's promises, to destroy your faith, to ruin your confidence in the promises of God in the face of overwhelming rejection. That's how he devours you. He is constantly seeking holes in your defenses to catch you asleep and to undermine your worldview. Peter says, resist him. Not bind him, not cast him out, but resist him. So don't be deceived. Don't be taken off guard. How do we do that? Well, Peter says, by standing firm in your faith. Bracing yourself in the truth. Hold fast the gospel. That's what Peter's saying. 
never ceases to surprise me how many Christians so easily concede to the enemy. How easily Christians will abandon the sure and certain word of God. How we will so easily trade truth for candy. That we will trade worship for a circus. Peter says, stand firm in your faith. Don't be moved from your convictions and what you know to be true. He also says, by knowing that we stand firm by, or resist the devil by knowing that all Christians everywhere are suffering too and fighting the same fight. We're in this together. And I'll tell you, in the U.S., it's probably time we drew strength from the more seasoned lion resistors in China, Iran, Kazakhstan. I know we have more in common with hunted Christians in Libya than we do with the empty Hollywood excuse for Christianity that is practiced here sometimes from Sunday to Sunday. Devoured. Those peoples are devoured. They never saw that lion coming. That brand of Christianity might be fine. You know what? That brand of Christianity might survive in a hostile place that's hostile to the gospel because that brand of Christianity is harmless to the kingdom of darkness, frankly. Be watchful. Take a wartime stance. Be watchful because your enemy hunts you. We're at war. Don't forget that. We're exiles, but we're at war. Thirdly, Peter says, be steadfast. God's grace sustains you. Be steadfast. God's grace sustains you. And grace becomes Peter's finale. He says, for a little while, after you have suffered a little while, what a, rich, what a rich phrase. Because on the one hand, he means that a little while is an age. When he says, after you have suffered for a little while, he means after you have suffered through this age, through this epic, and God's redemptive plan. On the other hand... Even though it's an age and it seems long to us, Peter is making the point that compared to eternity, this is just a small little time. A small little time. It's just a little while. This is the same phrase he uses back in chapter 1, verse 6, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. So he's bringing to close, he's circling back. At the end of his letter where he started, he's saying, now that you've suffered, you suffer now for a little while. The same kinds of suffering everybody's experiencing, and it's only for a little while. But the God of all grace, how can we be sustained? How can we remain faithful? The God of all grace, grace this supernatural supply and provision is found only in God. 
He's the God of all grace. And it is abundant and it is sufficient. God's grace is all that God is applied to everything we are not. That's why we have been saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the work of God. Because everything that is deficient in us has been supplied by God's sovereign grace in which he initiated to us understanding, new life, faith, salvation. It is by his grace. It is all that God is applied to everything that we are not. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul is talking about his thorn in the flesh, this suffering, whatever it was, and he begs the Lord to remove it three times. And every time the Lord Jesus responds to him with, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Jesus is saying, is everything that I am applied to everything you're not? is completely sufficient for you. It is by grace, Peter says, that he has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. And it is by his grace that he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. These words all go together to paint a picture of how God will exalt us. This will all be completed when Jesus is revealed. But God's grace is at work in you already, right now. He is already preserving you, already confirming you, strengthening you. And so great is God's grace that Peter concludes with a doxology and the word doxology comes from the Greek word doxos, which means glory. This is a word of glory. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What is Peter saying? Well, it's a statement of loyalty, for one thing. To God be the dominion. It's his kingdom we belong to. It's his kingdom that we are allied to. It's his kingdom we love and his kingship. But it is also a declaration of something immovable. To him be the dominion forever and ever. It is and will always be his dominion. Amen, so be it. This is a question of kingdom. And it is God who holds dominion. It is his kingdom that is permanent. All of the others fade. All of the others will be consumed. Well, it's even grace then that saturates Peter's affectionate farewell in verses 12 through 14. Even if it seems a little cryptic, if you look at verse 13, she who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Babylon is the city of Rome. It's the city of Rome. And Peter is drawing a parallel. 
Babylon, and the Old Testament. Peter's done this throughout the letter. In fact, he began this way in the letter. When he writes to us as exiles of the dispersion, elect exiles of the dispersion, he is drawing a parallel between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of Jesus in the New. He's saying we fulfill a pattern, a biblical story. When he says, she who is at Babylon, he's doing the exact same thing. And he's saying that Rome is the center of the world's kingdoms. It is in power, just as Babylon was in ancient days. And that Rome is just another Babylon. It's just another type. It's another fitting of the pattern of the biblical story as God plays it out. And so they're all the same. They're all united in opposition to God and his kingdom. And so ancient Babylon and Rome fulfill the biblical pattern of humanity's kingdoms that oppose God. Just as we are exiles who fulfill the pattern of God's mercy and grace of the dispersion in exile, his people now. So she who is likewise chosen, she who is sending greetings, this is the church in Rome. Which means that Peter is in Rome. He's writing this letter from Rome. And when he mentions Mark, this is Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. He says his son, he means his son in the faith, that Peter was probably instrumental in Mark's conversion, or at least in his discipleship and in his growing in the faith. And so Mark is there with him, and he sends greetings. And verse 14 is the affection, right? Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, back to verse 12, because I want to make a point here, because this is Peter's real closing. And it tells us a little bit about how the letter was written and how Peter sees this letter. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, which means Silvanus is actually pinning the letter. He is transcribing the letter as Peter speaks it. And the summary of the entire letter is the true grace of God. That is, the book of 1 Peter is God's supernatural provision for us. It transcends the first century and it applies to the people of God in every generation until Jesus returns. That is why it must be preached Proclaimed, learned, memorized, held on to. It will sustain us in exile. And Peter says, stand firm in it. Don't be moved from the words of this letter. Listen, we can't stand firm in the true grace of God if we withdraw or if we compromise. This is the true grace of God for us. Amen. Lord, thank you for guiding us and leading us through this, this book. And 
I ask that you would continue to sustain us and our brothers and sisters in this generation through the words of 1 Peter. How clear it is to us from the apostle's pen that we are special to you, that you and your sovereignty have called us together to be your people and to be distinct in the world and not to move out of the world and not to compromise in it. But Lord, to give testimony, to bear witness to your greatness, your glory, your grace, and your mercy that for now is available to all. Lord, may it be your will that you would continue to call many souls to yourself, that they too might know this new birth, this confidence and hope for eternity. Lord, help us to walk in faithfulness. Lord, to be so saturated with the eternal inheritance that is ours and your promises that make it certain that we would never, we would never abandon it, that we indeed would stand firm in the true grace that you have provided for us. We ask all of these things in your great name. Amen.